in To Kill a Mockingbird, Scout Finch reflected on her father Atticus's wise advice. He said, you never really know a man until you stand in his shoes and walk around in them. Hi, I'm Katie M. Shannon, and this is In Their Shoes, a podcast dedicated to uncovering lives that have been lost to time. My goal is to share the stories of everyday men, women, and children who didn't make it into the history books. They may have been forgotten, but now they will live again as we explore their lives and say their names. I believe that through the power of story, we can build an understanding of the past that will help heal our present and pave the way for a better future. One story at a time, one person at a time. Today, on episode two, we stand in the shoes of Mary Dwyer. Mary Dwyer was baptized at the Catholic Church in Turles, Ireland, in March 1836. She was the eldest daughter and firstborn child of Michael Dwyer and his wife, Mary Mayer. Turles, a market city and a large agricultural area, was located in the county of Tipperary, province of Munster, in south-central Ireland. It is perhaps best known for the Rock of Cashel, the seat of kings of Munster, now medieval ruins, and one of the most important archaeological sites in Ireland. There were around 7,000 people living in Turles when Mary was born, and around 10,000 in the whole parish. There were 1,210 houses, an infantry barracks, a large brewery, and a tannery. Market days were every Tuesday and Saturday. Fairs were held on the first Tuesday of each month. When the Dwyers saw their newborn baby held over the baptismal font that spring day, they could never have imagined how in just a few short years the town they knew and the life they lived would be forever changed. The trouble began in 1845, when Mary was around nine years old. By that time, she had a brother named James, a sister called Alice, and a newborn baby sister, Margaret. The year of Margaret's birth, the potato crop failed. It was struck by blight that came from North America. This might not seem like a big deal, but the loss of the potato crop spelled disaster for Mary and children like her all across Ireland. Over three million people, that's one-third the population of Ireland at the time, depended upon the potato as a source of food. They consumed virtually nothing else. Their complete reliance upon the potato brought upon a famine across the beautiful green country. The failure of the potato crop in 1845 held lasting implications. The fungus that had taken over the potatoes was part of an ecological eco logical disaster. There would be no return to normal. The potato planted and eaten by the people of Ireland was permanently damaged and could not reemerge as a food source, so a population kept alive by this potato would no longer be sustained. The world of Mary's childhood was marked by poverty. English colonizers dominated the Irish people, yet the potato kept them alive and 
Most of the Irish were healthy by the standards of that time. They had a reliable food source, the potato, and a reliable source of heat, the turf. Even so, their poverty was pronounced, particularly in housing conditions. 60% of the Irish population lived in the worst grade of housing. We're talking mud huts and mud cabins. Suddenly, there was no food to eat. Michael and Mary Dwyer and their four children faced starvation. All around them, people were dying of diseases associated with malnutrition like dysentery and scurvy. Typhus ravaged the land. Known as the fever, it was spread by lice and dirt. People were traveling across the land in search of food, and many tenants were being evicted from their homes. So as a result, they found themselves on the road with fewer opportunities to wash and bathe themselves and, their and wash their clothes, and that caused the spreading of the disease across the nation. In the midst of this misery, Mary gave birth to another son, Michael, his father's namesake, in 1846. It was truly incredible that she survived pregnancy and childbirth during this desperate time. Oral history accounts from Dwyers and Mayers, likely relatives of Mary and her family who remained in Ireland, tell of conditions at the time. John O'Dwyer said, there was a terrible famine in Ireland from 1845 to 1847. In that time, there was such a famine that the little children used to be crying with hunger and their fathers used to go away out around the field and not come back until night when it was time to go to bed because they could not bear to be here listening to the children crying. Mary was one of five children, age nine and under. Surely she was one of those who cried out with hunger pangs. What might she have experienced in her household at this time? John O'Dwyer provides us with an answer. The mothers of the children used to fill a pot of stones and water and let on to the children that they were potatoes. In that time, the people used to feed on potatoes and when the potatoes failed, they had nothing to eat. They had to eat nettles and weeds. The year 1847 was so bad that the people used to call it Black 47. Indeed, 1847 proved even worse than 1845. The entire potato crop failed yet again and Mary's mother was pregnant again as well. What images might Mary recall from her childhood? Joseph Mayer said of Mary's home in Tipperary, though the district contained a great many people before the famine, they died in scores of hunger and want. That those who had anything in the nature of food, such as cattle or corn or turnips, had to remain up every night to protect them from the bands of hungry people who went around at all times looking for something to eat. The men were so weak that they were scarcely able to dig graves for those that died. Whole families were wiped out, and the district contains scores of the ruins of old homes, which were the result of the famine and the evictions that immediately followed it. One of those ruined cottages would belong to the Dwyer family. In January 1848, Edward Dwyer, the youngest child, was baptized at the Catholic Church in Turles. Soon, he and likely his brother Michael were among the one million 
dead from the famine and its repercussions. Shortly after Edward's baptism and death, the Dwyers boarded a ship called the Ward Chipman in Liverpool, England. They said goodbye to Ireland forever, leaving their heritage, extended family, and a land they loved. They had to leave. They were desperate to keep their remaining children alive and give them an opportunity in a country where there was more than famine and death. The famine had broken them. Now they must start over. Their ship arrived in New Orleans, Louisiana on June 6, 1848. Mary was 12 years old when she looked out at the wharves of the largest city in the South and the new nation she would call home for the rest of her life. Only two years after Mary's arrival in New Orleans, one in five residents of the Crescent City came from Ireland. Suddenly, New Orleans, a city typically thought of as being French and Spanish, had the largest Irish population in the South. As a port city, New Orleans provided newly arrived immigrants with economic opportunities. As a Catholic city, it was also a refuge and held some connection with home. Parishes specifically for Irish congregations were being established across the city. Just three years after Mary came to New Orleans, St. John the Baptist Catholic Church was formed to serve Irish immigrants like her. This church would become of great importance to her later in life. When Mary was 19 years old, she married John William Mayer. John was also a native of Turles, and it is likely that Mary and her family had known the Mayers back in Ireland, particularly because Mary's mother had been a mayor. Now, we have to pause for a moment and acknowledge that Mary and her mother had name reversals. Her mother was Mary Mayer Dwyer. After Mary's marriage, she became Mary Dwyer Mayer. The thing to realize here is that you can't throw a rock in Tipperary and not hit a mayor or a Dwyer. They are everywhere. Their names grace countless tombstones across the county. To this day, if you go to Tipperary, you are certain to meet a mayor or a Dwyer. I'm Creole, and I'm pretty sure our family lines are even more interconnected, so let's all give them a break on this one. Mary's new husband had been baptized at the same Catholic church in Turles as she and her siblings. His parents, John Mayer and Mary Stokes, brought him there to be christened in November 1829. His godfather, William Mayer, was likely also his uncle and the source of his middle name. The couple had their first child in 1856, a daughter they called Mary. Clearly, they embraced the devotion to the Blessed Mother common in Irish households, but the name also signified a link to multiple generations. The baby held the same name as her mother and both her grandmothers. Three years later, a son joined the family. Mary christened him James Edward Mayer in honor of her brothers, James and Edward. By 1860, Mary was keeping house and chasing after her toddlers while John tended bar. All his life, he would have menial jobs. Typically, his profession was just listed as that of laborer. Yet John and Mary must have lived frugally, for they managed to save enough money to buy property. 
They owned most of the lots that made up the city square, bounded by Howard Avenue, Arado Street, Clio, and South Liberty Streets, as well as an adjacent tract on Ferret Street. They purchased the Ferret Street property in 1865, right at the end of the Civil War, which was a time typically not associated with prosperity in the city. They acquired the larger lots and buildings in 1876, 1879, and 1882. Like most Irish Catholic women of that time, Mary gave birth to more children. Eleonora Ida in 1866, Alice in 1873, and Julia Teresa in 1875. She raised her family in a two-story frame dwelling on South Liberty Street, not far from St. John the Baptist Catholic Church, where the family attended Mass. All of the children were sent to school and received educations. It is very likely that they attended the school attached to St. John the Baptist Church, learning their alphabet and numbers from Irish nuns. Tragedy struck the family on January 27, 1890, when John Mayer died in New Iberia, Louisiana. It's unclear why he was there. He had suffered from bronchial pneumonia. John's death reveals how connected Mary remained with her siblings. In fact, many were close neighbors. John's funeral was held at the home of Mary's sister, Margaret Dwyer Jones. His obituary notice declared that the time of mourning would begin at three o'clock in the afternoon precisely Precisely as offset with commas, as if to emphasize that tardiness would not be tolerated. They might have been Irish, but Mary wasn't going to put up with any ruckus of an Irish funeral. She purchased a lot in Carrollton Cemetery and buried her husband of 35 years there. Curiously, the obituary asks that New York papers copy the notice suggesting that John might have had family there, not uncommon considering the sweeping breadth of the Irish diaspora. Now a widow, Mary had to live frugally, particularly since she was still responsible for the well-being of her two youngest daughters. Alice was 17 and Teresa 15 at the time of their father's death. It is likely that they lived off of the income from rental properties at South Liberty. They moved into a home on Ferret Street where Mary would live for the rest of her life. 1218 Ferret Street was a neat single cottage, retired from the street. It contained five rooms, a front gallery, and a carriage drive. Alice soon began teaching music lessons to supplement their household income and frequently played at weddings. In her will, Mary made it clear that she understood that Louisiana law required a certain portion of the estate to go to each of her children. However, she stipulated that any remaining property should go to her daughters, Alice and Teresa. These were the daughters who had remained with her in old age. They had not married and Mary was worried about their future. She did what she could to provide for them. She specifically willed lot 178, the burial plot in Carrollton Cemetery to Teresa. She gave the piano and all household effects in her residence to Alice. She also appointed Alice as testamentary executor of her estate, a bold step in 1902 for a woman who had a son, sons-in-law, and other male relatives. Alice was neither the eldest child nor a son. 
Yet it is obvious that her mother trusted her implicitly and believed her capable of handling her succession. Mary died of liver cancer on September 28, 1902. She was at home on Ferret Street with her daughters. At the time of her death, she had called New Orleans home for over 50 years. The undertaker who reported her death made sure to note that she was a native of Tipperary. Her funeral was held the afternoon of October 4th with three priests presiding. Also in attendance were six nuns. To fully understand Mary's life, it seems fitting to read an excerpt from her obituary. The death of Mrs. Mary Dwyer Mayer removes from public view a lady who had for many years been active in charitable work in this city. After her marriage to the late John W. Mayer, she became quietly active in the charitable work connected with the Church of St. John the Baptist and did not a little to relieve the widow and the fatherless in this community. Her death was sincerely mourned by a large number of friends, as was testified by the impressive funeral procession, both at the residence in Ferret Street and at the cemetery. Born into poverty in Ireland, survivor of famine and disease, she spent most of her life serving others. It cannot be denied that her early life experiences impacted the choices she later made and her perspective on her life's purpose. Mary is just one of two million Irish men, women, and children who left Ireland during the decades um, of the famine and beyond. Today, 34 and a half million Americans trace their ancestry back to Ireland. So Mary is just a speck of sand in the beach, a drop of water in a great ocean. But she matters to me. For Mary is my husband's great, 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 great grandmother. And together, he and I stood on her ancestral soil in Tipperary. We looked out at the enchanting beauty of that land and its charming, hospitable people and knew that only utter desperation would drive a person from it. Why should she matter to you? Because each person's life holds intrinsic value and a story worthy of telling. Thanks for listening to this special St. Patrick's Day episode of In Their Shoes. I hope that today while you eat your soda bread, drink your Guinness, and sing Oh Danny Boy, you'll remember Mary Dwyer. I have been a professional historian for 16 years. Each story I tell is extensively researched using primary source documents. For show notes and a transcript of this episode, you can find me at www.katymshannon.com. That's Katie with a Y, M Shannon.com. Or follow me on Instagram at Katie M Shannon Author. Again, I'm Katie with a Y. Also, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single story. See you next week when we put on a new pair of shoes and walk around in them.